So um, the first reading is going to be in uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That's on page 722 of the Church Bibles. Uh, Please join me as we pray to the God who's given us this word. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness in being a speaking God, a God who wants us to know you. And so we pray now that you will give us listening uh, ears and hearts, hungry and open to receive what you have to say to us. Um, And Father, we pray for your uh, help of instilling Uh, to Steve as well. Father, would you um, uh, uh, make his words come to us with um, real conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his preparation. Please um, speak to us through him as he opens this part of your word up to us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So that's how Luke introduces his gospel. Okay. Now will you turn with me to a little bit further forward to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, which is on page 862 of the Church Bibles. Page 862. Peter chapter 1 and we're reading the paragraph from sentence number 16 to sentence 21. (coughs) 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 16. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The third of four readings is now f- further forward in 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, and that's on page 864. 864. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And how fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this 
to make our joy complete. And then finally, the, the fourth reading is back to John's Gospel, John chapter 20. So near the end of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, page 766 of the Church Bibles. And it's John chapter 20, and just two sentences, 30 and 31. John 20, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. Well, those are the four readings, and Steve will open those up to us under that heading, How Can We Trust the Bible. Um. Well, good morning. Take a seat, please. Oh, dear, man. Did we find the visual that Dean put up for us at all, Joe, the couple that, that are there? Do you mind if we just bung them up? Is that all right? There's two of them. One's for the whole series, one for just today. I don't know whether it appeared. Come on, Telly Are they there or not? No, no, not that one. No, about the series. No. Okay, no worries. Right, we'll get that sorted for next week. No worries. Okay. Listen, uh, grab all your Bibles. We're going to be doing it a little bit differently this, this week. Because, you know, what we'll usually do is work through a passage of the Bible. But at the start of this year, five big things that will help, hopefully, build you up in your faith and give you things to say to some of your friends. Uh, I'm thinking particularly as well of, the, of you youngsters who are in school. Because it's not like your mates are going, oh, Dan, I hear you went to church yesterday. Tell me what you heard. It's not like that's going on, really, is it? Uh, the big assumption is that Christianity is out of date, got nothing to say to the real life, and there is no power in it whatsoever. I'm hoping that by the end of this five weeks, you'll get a sense of, do you know what? I'm standing on something that is really credible and is really true. Uh, so today we're in uh, Why Trust the Bible. Let's just quickly pray again. Uh, Lord, your word tells us that you're a God who speaks and has things to say to us, and that you do not bypass our thinking and our reasoning Lord, we want to see if there is evidence, give us confidence and assurity that we can trust the Bible, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm hoping, if I'm quick enough, there'll be five minutes at the end for you to ask questions. So if you're doodling and writing stuff down, you want to, you, you're thinking of something along the way, write down the question, that's absolutely fine. Hopefully we can take some questions. So, uh, as we have already, uh, con- well, no, no, we haven't got, quite got to that bit. Uh, best-selling book in the world? but they're not flying off the shelves in Smith's at the retail park, okay? What is the Bible? Well, the word Bible means collection of books, almost like the word library. There are 66 books in the Bible. The Bible was written over 1,600 years by 40 authors. It was written by kings, diplomats, fishermen, shepherds, so it's not classist. People from all different walks of life uh, helped write the Bible. It was written in three different languages, and it was written on three different continents. So don't you stand for anybody who comes along and says to you, well, it's just a Western religion, and it's Western imperialism being foisted upon us. That's garbage. This is a message that transcends cultures and goes to every person on the face of the planet. That's the Bible. And the reality is is that hundreds of millions, if not billions of people, when they have opened the Bible, they have found a message that not just connects to them and tells them who they are, but tells them something even more important, something about who God is, and they have wanted to bet their life on that message. Now, if you read it, and I'm guessing most of you here do, but read it more, If you read this message of the Bible, you will find that it makes outrageous claims. It's not like um, an Ikea catalogue. You know you get an Ikea catalogue, come through the post. Nowadays it's all actually done by email, isn't it? So it's not like an Ikea email that says, here's some good stuff for you to think about to add on to the side of your life. No. It's much more um, uh, sort of brutal than that. It says, this is the thing on which to base your life. Here is the truth about who you are as a person, where you came from, who God is, what he is like, that he loves you, 
that you have sinned and that you need a saviour and that heaven and hell are real and we need some answers to these big questions. This isn't something that you just tag on the side. This is something that you build your life upon. And here's the thing. Anyone can make a claim. I could stand here and tell you that I can dunk a basketball. I can. I really, really can. When the net's only six foot high. Okay. Anybody can make a claim, an outrageous claim. The big question is, is can, can they back it up? Is it credible? Is it plausible? Is it believable? Can you trust it? Now, there are loads of people. And I, oh, by the way, we're sick of spin, aren't we? We are sick of people over-promising and under-delivering. We're so used to it, aren't we? Almost the second that the adverts come on, really? Is going on that diet plan really going to transform my life? And by joining that gym, am I really going to look as awesome as Steve? Is that really going to happen? Listen, we're sick of spin. Listen, there's loads of opinions about the Bible. Uh, some people think it's a bit unsettling. Some people, although they've probably not read it, are convinced that it is a, a dangerous book that will oppress people. That's rubbish. Um, uh, some people are just saying you can pick and choose out of it. Some people say it's a beautiful allegory that you just have to connect to and add your own meaning and receive from it and, just, uh, and, then, uh, and then plow your own furrow and go, and go up your own path. But many people have bet their life on the message of the Bible. Many people have said, I'm going to spend my life studying it. They've claimed to have met God through Jesus Christ in it. They've claimed that this Bible becomes the lens through which light, it's almost like a window, and it's like if I look through the lens of the Bible out, I can see the world in a fresh way and everything suddenly starts to make sense. So is it trustworthy? Is it intellectual suicide to bet your life on the Bible? Will it deliver? Uh, deliver? Do I even care? Isn't that the problem that tomorrow you're going to you're gonna go to some of your friends at work, you're going to bump into people at, at school, and you're going to say, guess what we're hearing about how trustworthy the Bible was? And they're going to go, well, I don't care. I mean, let's just take that just for a second, you know, the utter indifference. Many of our friends don't care about the message of the Bible. What if the Bible is true and they ignore it? I don't care. Really? It's had such a big impact on the, the face of humanity, and it's talking about heaven and hell, and you treat the Bible as if it's something that's got to prove itself to you before you even pay any attention. It's almost as if we sit in judgment upon the message of the Bible. Listen, if the message of the Bible is straight up and true, it's going to sit on ju in judgment of you, not the other way around. So if you dare to say, I don't need the Bible, at least know why you're rejecting it. At least have thought about the evidence for yourself, weighed it up, it could be that you're, that you're missing the very thing that you've been looking for all your life and that you need to bet your life upon. I wonder whether some of you could say that to some people tomorrow. We've been finding out about how reliable and trustworthy the message of the Bible is. Is there a possibility that you've been missing the most important thing that you've ever needed for your life? Heaven and hell, what's at stake? So anyway, listen. Uh, we're going to go through this very quickly, and we're going to look at two key points. The first one uh, is pretty short. The second one is a little bit longer. I want to try, I'm hoping that the rest of this will only take about 20, 25 minutes so that we get time for questions. Uh, why trust the Bible? Have we got that slide up there so people can know where we're going? Okay. Oh, we saw, wow. Okay. First of all, first of all, we're going to see what the Bible claims about itself. And then second of all, we're going to see, can it be true? Oh, look at, you've just gone all off the grid. You've gone all sort of AWOL. Okay, fine, that's no problem. Brilliant, okay? Keep an eye on Joe, he's a slippery one. Right, okay. What the Bible claims about itself. And we're going to go through at breakneck speed. Somebody read for me very quickly Luke chapter 2, verses, um, uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. And whilst that's happened, happening, somebody put up their hand who can find 2 Peter 1. Who's going to find 2 Peter 1? Elaine's going to do that. Brilliant. And who's going to find 1 John chapter 1? Who's going to find that for me? Brilliant. Kaylee's going to get that one. Okay. So what does the Bible claim about itself? Who's going to read for me uh, the first uh, four verses of Luke's gospel? Who's going to do that? Andy, go for it, mate. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly 
for you or to accidentally others, so that you may know the certainty Brilliant. Okay. Did you get that there? So we had things like uh, the idea of certainty, carefully investigated, eyewitness. Now, just does this have the ring of somebody who's trying to tell you a, a poem about nothing in particular? No, this gives you the impression of somebody who's really concerned about truth. In fact, he claims that he has spoken to the eyewitness about something that actually happened that has an impact upon us. But it's not just Luke. What about uh, Peter? Uh, somebody read for us verse 16 of chapter 1 of Second Peter. Don't everybody go listening to it. Uh, Elaine, would you read that one out for us, verse 16? Okay, did you hear that? Not cleverly invented stories. That's where we get that, that word. It's, it's like mythos. It, it comes, it's where we get the word myth from. So he's telling you straight up, looking you in the, well, looking at your print and saying, listen, listen, we're not making this up. We're not trying to get you to have an allegory. We want you to, this actually happened and we want you to do something about it. We were eyewitnesses. Somebody got that first bit in John, was it Andy? Did you get that bit? No, who got, yeah, oh, Kayleigh, yeah, 1 John chapter um, 1 verses 1 to 4. And as you listen to this, count how many senses, how many senses are being talked about. Go for it. Brilliant, that'll do just there. Okay, how many senses? Which ones were they? Good, Georgie. See? Touch. Listen. Did you get those? Three of them there, okay? Now, that, that, that's, that's, pretty, pretty per that, that's pretty much, this is what happened. I saw it, I heard it, I went, touch, okay? This is something I want you to take as serious that has happened. Okay, imagine I come home uh, from work tomorrow evening and Jane goes there. You should have seen, I saw, they should have seen what the kids were doing it to each other. I had to go over and lay hands on, grab them, pull them apart, the things that they were saying to each other. And I stand there and I go, I just want to bring a little bit of interpretation to what's happening here. I feel from your story that you're giving me an allegory about life and about how we're in this cosmic turmoil that means we need to find a route through without conflict. No, I want to tell you what happened to your bloody well do something about your kids. Do you get the idea? What have we got? A claim of an eyewitness account saying something has happened that has changed everything and you need to respond to it. That's what the claim of the Bible is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about stuff that would happen. People who saw it, he said, Jesus appeared to about 500 people and a whole stack of others on not multiple occasions. And it's as if he's saying, because it was written within just a couple of decades of the events happening, he's as if he's saying, he's going, go and check it out. Go and ask them. Ask them. This is, this is my claim, that this has actually happened in real, in real life, and, and it changes absolutely everything. So listen, the Bible, what does it claim about itself? It's not claiming to be a myth or an allegory to take or to leave, but the very word gospel means report good news about something that has happened that changes absolutely everything. But listen, that's people's report. The Apostle Paul goes on to say, this message of the Bible is God's message. If we turned up 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we haven't got time to do, it would say uh, that all scripture, all the Bible is God-breathed. That's what it's claiming. It's claiming that in some sense, God, his message was breathed out by the Holy Spirit through the people who were writing it. In fact, Elaine, if you've still got that 2 Peter bit open, I should have told you to keep it open, Okay. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, you'll hear Peter saying exactly the same thing that Paul said. Are you there? I filled for you. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Go for it. So not only is this history, this is divine intervention guarding a message. Did you hear that? Men were carried along as they wrote... Some people will come to you and say, well, you can't trust a, a book that was written by 
fallible, ruined men. And you're right, except if God is the one who is blowing behind. That word carried along is the idea of, uh, it describes wind blowing a ship out on the sea. It gets carried along. Here is God directing from behind. So this is a perfect revelation. That's the claim. That's the claim of the Bible. It is the perfect revelation to us from God, a love letter inviting your trust. So that's what the claim of the Bible is. So knowing that doesn't help us, does it? The question is, is it trustworthy? So we're going to go on to number two. Okay, number two. Can we trust the Bible? And we're going to put it through three tests of trustworthiness. The first one is the honesty test, i.e. from looking inside it, does it have the ring of honesty? Number two, the telephone test. Uh, does it, uh, have we got the message, that is, uh, the message that we have now? Is it what was originally written down? And the third test is the corroboration test or the external test. Does it match up with evidence from around the time? Okay, so three quick tests. So, first one, honesty test. There's something called the criterion of embarrassment. Okay, the criterion of embarrassment. So when you want to check out whether somebody's reliable... Is there stuff in there um, that makes the person who wrote it look like an idiot? Because if it does make them look like an idiot, it probably means that they're more bothered about truth than they are about what they look like. And that's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's not many of you who sit, lie at home at night every evening going, I wonder how I can put up a Facebook post that makes me look like a complete schmuck. You, you just don't do that, do you? Okay, you just don't think and plan that one through. In fact, you do the exact opposite. How can I make myself look as good as possible? <laughs> oh, and tell the truth as well, if, if I can do both at the same time. Okay? So, the apostles, those who wrote the Bible, the disciples, as far as they were concerned, well, if you read through it, listen, there's countless examples. Peter, he records how Jesus called him Satan. The other disciples, they, they don't shy away from the fact that they march along going, we want to be the greatest, we want to be the greatest, when they're standing next to Jesus. There's the, they record how, how on the night when Jesus was betrayed, they all legged it. They were big chickens. They, 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 through the rest of the, 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 bit, uh, the Gospels, there's countless accounts of when they're just being utterly spiritually clueless. So what do we find? And when we read the New Testament, we find that the disciples are communicated as ambitious, as stupid, as evil, as cowardly, as proud, as powerless, and as clueless. They're not winners. Would you say that was pretty embarrassing for them? Yeah, they're pretty embarrassing. So if I wanted to lie about Jesus, I'd probably want to make myself look pretty good along the way too. Is that what happens? No, quite the opposite. You go away thinking they're idiots, but Jesus is great. So that's the criterion of embarrassment. That, that, that's a bit of an honesty test. What about the cost of the, them writing it? The cost of them writing it. You know, there's, there's usually, if you're going to tell lies, I'll help you out on this one, just make sure you're tuned in. If you're going to tell lies, I can tell you there's usually one of three motives. If you're going to tell lies, usually it's for the motive of gaining money, gaining sex, or gaining power. Those are the three reasons that you would generally sp decide to make something up, maybe a hoax or something, because it would get you a bit of power, it would mean that uh, you get more sex or more money. All right? So that's, that's quite simple and straightforward. But you think about the cost of the disciples writing this. Did they get any of those three? Answer, no. They went out into a world that hated them for telling this message, so they got removed from all positions of power. It wasn't until about 4th century when uh, politics and religion started to mix, uh, when people who were church leaders began to get any kind of status uh, in society. Usually the opposite happened. You name the name of Jesus, it was your quickest way to get executed and your family to be dragged through the dirt. Uh, sex, well, they went out with a message to say stay totally faithful to the one person who you are married to for life. Uh, immorality will only break you. Uh, so did they get more of that by telling this message? No. Money, well, they followed somebody who, who was born into a borrowed stable, put in a borrowed crib. Uh, he, he had a borrowed donkey, he had a borrowed cross, and he had a borrowed tomb. Uh, he, they went out into the world following his example by giving away stuff so that others could be blessed. So, honesty, the cost of them writing it, every, humanly speaking, they didn't get ahead. Now, people will die to protect something 
that is true, but they won't die to protect a hoax. They won't give away all their advantage to protect a hoax. The second that it gets a little bit difficult, they'll go, oh, I was only messing, I was only messing. I mean, you've seen that with your kids at home, haven't you, if your parents, you know, they're playing one game and then you, they, then you threaten them so oh, I was only messing. Now, this has got the ring of honesty because of this criterion of embarrassment. They looked stupid. And the cost of writing, well, it gained them nothing, but they were just desperate to get this news about Jesus out that they were even prepared to die for it. And then there's this third part of the, the, the test of honesty is the witnesses that they use. And I don't want to insult anybody in the room, but they are unlike any other historical document of the ancient, um, uh, ancient world in that the evidence, the, sorry, the, the witnesses they used were women. Wow. Back in the first century, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Now, if you're making up a hoax and you want to make it as believable as possible, you're not going to sit there and go, let me think of the people who are least trusted in society, rightly or wrongly, least, wrongly that is, uh, least trusted in society and make them the heroes. In fact, if you're a man writing something, wouldn't the, wouldn't the, um, uh, the incident at the tomb after Jesus has risen from the grave, wouldn't it mean that if you're a man, it would have gone something like this? And the women were weeping and all being pathetic and very little faith. But the men came running up and they threw the stone away. They comforted the women and then they all went to breakfast. Or something like that is how it would have been if a man had made up the story. But in fact, what it was, was the men... The men came along, all really nervous, not quite sure, running a little bit, saw that the tomb was empty, freaked out, ran away and hid, and it was the women who stayed there and said, we have seen Jesus, they're the heroes. You see, it's not that the apostles wrote this to make it as unbelievable as possible from an evidential point of view, as in who they pick as witnesses. But they could almost be charged with that, unless it's true unless it's true. So the honesty test, does it pass the embarrassment test? Yep. The cost of writing? Yep. And the witnesses, this has just got the ring of credibility. It's honest. It's believable. But what about the second test? We talked about the test, uh, the, the honesty test. What about the telephone test? Okay, the telephone. I wonder whether you ever have uh, nightmares that you have written a message on your phone to send to somebody, and it is either inaccurate and somebody's got it and it's caused trouble or more likely it's just gone to the wrong person <laughs> okay i love sometimes you know sometimes you, you can find them on youtube uh, inappropriate messages that were meant for somebody but went to your mum or dad oh dear <laughs> it's it's the telephone test it's has the message that you intended actually got to the right person was it you know you get that idea okay so it's the problem of communication did we, in our Bibles, get what those original eyewitnesses actually wrote? And of course, people turn around to you and say, if they've listened to the Da Vinci Code, they'll say, no, some nasty evil men in the 4th century, 5th century, for their own political gain, decided to change the me message of the Bible to make it say what they wanted to say so they could get political power. Okay? And everybody goes, oh, that's terrible in the Bible without even questioning whether that is actually what has happened. So let's, let, 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 let's, let's, let's test how all scholars test old documents. They measure it by two criteria, gap and number. Gap between when it was first written and the first copy of what is written we've got. Okay, so how does this work? I'll, I'll give you an example. So Pliny the Younger, a very prominent ancient author, uh, when he wrote to when they've got the first copy, 750 years gap. From when it was first wrote to the first copy. Imagine how much that must have been changed, or could have been changed, in that 750 years. How do we know that what he wrote was there? Well, then you've got Caesar's Gallic Wars, gap between when it was first written and when it was uh, the first copy, a thousand years. What about um, Plato's, the tetro thing that I can't even pronounce, okay? Gap. From when it was first written to the first copy, 1,200 years. Gap with the New Testament documents between when it was first wrote, written, and the first copies, four of them, or part, uh, part, part copies that this is, 50 years. Do you see that? It's unprecedented in ancient literature how, much, how early the copies are within... 
two generations. Some people, they think they've possibly found one that was even earlier at the end of the first century, part of section of Mark's gospel. Unprecedented how close the copies are. So in that short period of time, is it going to have got changed very much? No. No. Compared with all of their ancient history documents, it is unprecedented. What about how many copies? Okay. So uh, let's go back to that. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 10 copies. Uh, Plato's book, that's uh, unpronounceable, seven copies. Tacitus, who was a very famous Roman historian, 20 copies. And nobody doubts them and their authenticity. New Testament, in the first 500 years after Jesus, 24,633. The, the ancient document other than the New Testament that we've got the most early copies of uh, is the, the Iliad, 643, which basically means that the Bible is ahead of that by 24,000. It doesn't even compare. From early, from early manuscript evidence, if you were to stack for the typical ancient documents, uh, stack it in terms of the amount of, of stuff we've got, in terms of height, you'd stack up the documents. Most of them would be about four feet high, which is about there. Okay? If you were to stack up the equivalents from the New Testament, it would be over a mile high. We know what was written, when it was written, and we know it with, with accuracy that we have got what those first authors wrote. And somebody say, but what about all the variations and the variants in the text? Well, 80% of those, it turns out, are just spelling mistakes that don't change the meaning whatsoever, okay? If you've got a text saying, mum wants you to cook dinner, and in the middle of the M and the M of mum, instead of an U, it said I. Mim wants you to cook dinner. Or there was, I don't know, a hashtag or something like that. Do you think you'd misunderstand it? No. Particularly if, um, for some bizarre reason, to the other five girls in our family, the correct one with the M-U-M had been sent in, and you could compare it. So if Bethany's like, Mim, who's Mim? Bethany, uh, Be- Becky, who's Mim? Uh, and Bethany, Becky goes, hello. And Amy goes, hello. And Emily goes, and Poppy and, Emily, uh, Poppy and Lucy go, can we have a phone too? And it, all of that, you know, it's not, 80% of the variations are in spelling that don't affect meaning. There's 1% that actually have an impact on meaning, none of which affect key and essential doctrines. And they've got the little, if there is uncertainty, there's a little footnote in the bottom of the Bible that tells you it so that you can make up your own mind. It is so accurate, it is unbelievable. Now, some people say, oh, the Bible's like Chinese whispers, and you played that Chinese whispers game, we play it now. I could shoot along, stand at the end of Catherine's row, and send a little message down, and by the time it get to Kosh, it would pro- uh, who knows what it'd have to say about it. It could be anything, couldn't it? And people say, well, the Bible, it's Chinese whispers. No, it's not, because that assumes one line of communication that has been corrupted. What we've got is thousands of documents that you can put in a big room with a little sad dude who's got nothing better to do and compare them all and figure out what the actual root message was. It's not what line of communication. It's not Chinese whispers. We have got an unprecedented amount of evidence so we can know for surety what those first apostles wrote down. So when you get somebody like the, the guy from the Da Vinci Code, he got his, like, his source material for his, his myth idea and changed idea was because there was something called the Gospel of Philip written in the 4th century, which is about three or 400 years after Jesus, uh, of which we have one copy, only one, one copy, and somewhere in the middle of that copy it says this. Jesus, oh, so this is talking about the myth that Jesus uh, wasn't actually the son of God. He fell in love with Mary Magdalene and went off and had kids somewhere, okay? In that one copy that was written years, you know, 10 generations after the event, by a guy who'd probably got his own agenda anyway, it says, Jesus kissed her on the... Doesn't say anymore. So some bizarre scholar or Dan Brown because they've got nothing better to do has just filled in the gap and out of it concocted a whole story that Jesus married Mary Magdalene and went off somewhere and had kids idiots you can't kick the bible into touch for that we've got 24,630 something or other 
copies. We know what the apostles said, and we know the truth about Jesus. Okay? So the Bible on, on its own is a text that is utterly reliable. Now, I know some of you have watched Channel 4 or read some ciliary textbook at school or listened to some drivel online. And you think that the Bible has been debunked. Can I tell you the opposite is true? Every year, more evidence, more manuscripts are being discovered to show that the original texts we have of the Bible are totally accurate. And where there is a small variation, we put those in there so people can judge for themselves. The telephone call has got through. We have what was written. There's a good reason to trust it. Very quickly, I need to finish soon. Corroboration test, okay? Corroboration test. What does that mean? Corroboration test is yet somebody will come along and say, Steve, but that's all information from inside the Bible. You know, you've talked about how their honesty inside the Bible, and you've talked about their, uh, uh, whether or not we've got enough scripts from the Bible. If it was true, there would be evidence outside the Bible. And they're dead right, aren't they? Because if Jesus is who he said he is and can do what he says he can do, he, he dropped a bomb, the Jesus bomb went off in the middle of first century Palestine. You'd expect people to be talking about it outside of the Bible. It's described in the book of Acts that this message was going out in such a way that it turned the world upside down. Well, the reality is, is that we have author's evidence and archaeological evidence. Okay? So, nine from the first 150 years after the event, we have nine people who aren't even Christians who start to tell us stories and news about Jesus. Um, We have 33 outside the Bible who were people of faith who start to tell us stuff about Jesus. That's 42 42 corroborating um, uh, authors outside of the Bible. Now, if you compare that to Caesar's Gallic Wars uh, that talk about the existence of Julius Caesar and some of the things he got up to outside of his own histories, there's only 10. So the Bible, the gospel story, has four times as much corroborating evidence. Outside of the Bible, there are reports that Jesus was the Son of God, that he actually lived, that he did miracles, that he died on a cross, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, that he was worshipped as God, that he appeared to people, and that he ascended. That's not from inside the Bible. That's evidence from outside of the Bible. So that's from authors. But what about the archaeology? Do you remember... um, Do you remember a minute ago we had uh, Luke chapter 1 read to us and Luke was described as somebody who went to carefully investigate? Um, Is there corroborating evidence of his accounts of what happened? Now, listen, people have gone on journeys. Maybe if if you've got a spare time to go on a sabbatical, you might want to do the same, to go off and try to debunk the historical reliability of the gospel accounts. There's a famous guy called Frank Morrison who went off, did his very best to prove that that it was all a myth and all made up, investigated all the times, all the places, all the rituals, all the the history, the politics, all of that. And then he ended up writing um, a book called Who Moved the Stone because he ended up realizing that the Bible was true. So William Ramsey, an internationally renowned scholar, did a 30-year study and he said this, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed alongside the very greatest of historians. So when it comes to places, people's names, customs, rituals, politics, it's accurate. That gives you a sense of corroboration. That if Luke was so bothered to be dead accurate with what he said about those things, maybe the truth that's a bit harder to believe about who Jesus is, well, that's built up and there's a a platform of, of confidence that we can have. Wow. So, the Bible, a message of new life in Jesus, easily passes the honesty test, the telephone test, the corroboration test. But as I wrap up now, I need to tell you about the biggest test. The real test. And it's this. It isn't the one that the Bible has to pass. It's the test that we have to pass. It's not as if the Bible sits under us and we sit in judgment of it. Now, if it is true, it is a love letter sent from God. And the real test is how will we respond? So when you're speaking with your friends and talking to them about the reliability of the Bible, you need to push back on that a little bit and say, don't you realize that if, if this is true, 
It doesn't have to prove anything to you. Although it does. It doesn't have to. You need to get in line with it. We had read from us, didn't we, John chapter 20, where the apostle says, These things are written that you may believe, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, it gets pushed back to us, doesn't it? You know, some of us are worried that by betting our life on the message of the Bible, on Jesus, on his love, on his forgiveness, on him as king, that we might turn into some sort of crazed fanatic. And to that, I want to say, I hope so. I really do. A fanatic is somebody who's passionately and deeply committed to their beliefs. Like Peter, who was prepared to to go across the known world telling the message of Jesus at great personal cost history records that he was crucified for not denying Jesus and he was crucified upside down what about Luke who spent all that time researching just so that we could be absolutely certain what about the apostle Paul who like Peter went out and uh, and was relentless in telling even his enemies and people who didn't want to hear you need to respond to this message of Jesus they were fanatics not dangerous ones not violent ones not bigoted ones no You can be a fanatic and be like that, but you don't have to be. Not if you follow somebody who gave up his life for his enemies. You can be somebody who's passionate and committed enough to invest their life in faith and dependence on Jesus that shows itself by helping to carry this message into our lives more and more and into the lives of people around who at this point just don't want to hear what the message of the Bible is. The Bible will go on. It is God's word. It's his announcement about Jesus who loves us and he invites us to increase our trust in that message every day. Now that's the end of what I was going to bring to you. Uh, We've got five minutes now. If you want to be able to ask a question about anything we've touched on in terms of why trust in the Bible or stuff that there's loads of stuff I've missed out because I didn't have time to bring it to you. I don't know whether anybody wants to start. If I don't know an answer, I'll just say I don't know the answer. But I'll try. Brilliant. Who's got a question? See, there's always a real struggle within me at this point when I say who's got a question because the reason for no questions could be abundant. I like to think it's because I've covered everything so well. I'll box it all off. But in my experience, that's rarely the case. So I have to assume that either you weren't listening, uh, or you don't think I'm even worth asking, uh, or you're too nervous to ask, uh, or you're not quite sure what you want to ask. Go on, Nathan. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good uh, question. So what the, the question is, Christians disagree on what the Bible means. Um, why should I trust it? Um, first of all, I'd probably start further back than that and find out why they're using that particular query. Do they really mean it? Or do, are they, is that a real question for them? Or are they just using that as a way to dismiss the Bible? Um, assuming it's the second one, I just want to use it to dismiss the Bible. I'd say you're wrong. The vast majority of people who've read the Bible and are people of faith and love Jesus agree on all the important things. That Jesus is God, that he came and he lived, that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he did miracles, uh, that he uh, went to a cross claiming that he was going there to pay for our sins, uh, that he was buried in a tomb, that he rose again, that his message is going out all across the, the world, and that one day he will come back again and be the judge of the whole earth. So the simple answer to that question is, you're wrong. And that's probably where I'd leave. And most of them would be like, oh. And you find when you're answering people's questions, most of the time, if you're able to give a reasonably logical answer, people turn into blobbering messes because most of the time they assume that Christians are, are, are dopes who haven't thought about anything. Just the fact that you're able to give a reasoned answer and to say, actually, no, this is, this is, this is more the case, quite often gives you an opportunity to get to what's even more important, which isn't simply the trustworthiness of the Bible, but why is it you don't want to think about this? Yeah, so I hope that helps a bit. Go for it.
Yeah, sorry, so what's the, what's the question? Yeah, and I think, I think I mean, I qualified the way I answered it by making an assumption about where somebody was coming from. So somebody was using it to, to just blandly just dismiss. Uh, obviously, if they've got specific inquiries, and you've given some good examples of genuine things that people are specifically inquiring about, we'd go in a different way, and each of those individual ones was a different way to go at. But I think broadly speaking, um, in my experience, um, when I'm, I'm speaking with people, they've either got a very specific question um, that has been a hindrance or a, a blocker for them, and if that's the case, I'll deal with that. But if a lot of people say, well, Christians can't, it's a quite flippant. And if you, I think there's this great verse in the, in the Bible, you know, um, answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. It's okay if people are being flippant for us to appropriately just go, seriously, you really think that? <laughs> we can do that, and that's legitimate. Okay? Good. Another question? Go for it. Uh, that's really interesting. So, uh, and again, I'm not an expert on this, but broadly speaking, the Quran has been a concoction, basically, of pulling together some of the Ju uh, Judaistic teachings, pulling together some of the teachings from Christianity, pulling together a bit of Greek philosophy, and coming to pulling together some of the preferences of the guy who wrote it down. Um, so what we've got is we've got bits about... Jesus in there, but we're talking about something that was written down 700 years. He's only going off either rumor or original source documents. So in terms of whether or not um, Jesus is who he says he is, doesn't stand anywhere near on the Quran because the Quran was written centuries afterwards uh, and has robbed, stolen, taken stuff from the Bible anyway. Okay, good question. You've just done a very quick move in one direction at the end of that question. So I'm trying to figure out how to summarise it. Uh, one of the, one of the, it lacks credibility, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Right, so there's the credibility in terms of some the of the... The story is incredible. Okay, therefore, that diminishes credibility. Um, well, the great thing is, is it's dead honest with its incredulity. <laughs> it's dead honest with its outrageousness because of the very nature of the claim. So I suppose when I'm talking with somebody about that, I would want to go back to first principles and say, are you on principle um, unable to consider something incredible happening? And many people that we speak to, particularly in the, second, uh, the, the secular world, want us to argue for the reliability, the trustworthiness of the Bible from within their set of assumptions. Um, what the Bible does is it sets, a, it sets a bomb under every other set of assumptions and says, listen, we're bringing you something out of this world. Don't try and get us to um, qualify it or prove it from within this world. We're talking about a God who has intervened. The scale of the claim is such that it doesn't fit any of your other categories. Um, that doesn't mean you don't consider it. In fact, that might be all the more reason to consider it. So I would probably go somewhere that way with it. Go for it. Yep, that's right, yep. Well, the question often people say is, well, who put together them? You know, who are they supposed yeah. to be? What authority? How are they guided? Yeah, so Andy's talking about something called canonicity, which is the canon, which uh, the word canon literally means measuring stick. So what, how, did some, how did some early writings about Jesus come together and become what we know as the 27 accepted books of the New Testament? And why is it that some got rejected? And some of them you'll have heard, uh, uh, say, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, mention that one there. Um, so, what's his name? The Shepherd. A whole stack of other, other um, apocryphal books. The answer is very simple. Um, early on, uh, it, it's simply measured by uh, 
can the writing be taken and traced back to one of the apostles? Uh, how long after the events was it written down? And over a period of about 250 years um, uh, from the first apostles, there were books that were recognized as of some interest because they carried some sort of Christian philosophy, but weren't written by the apostles or anywhere near the time of the apostles. And so there are historical interest to figure out what people believed at those points. But the church, as they sort of filtered these writings down, realized that it they weren't authoritative from the apostles within, written within the, the prerequisite time. So over that period of time, uh, the 27 books that we have in the New Testament developed and were established. And then uh, in the 300s, there was a number of gatherings of big Christian leaders who basically rubber stamped and said, yeah, we've always known that those were the ones that had consistent doctrine with what the apostles taught, within the, written within the period of time, and we can trace it back to those authors. Those are reliable. Those ones aren't. And that was basically how the canon came together. That's a really good question about why 27 books and not 30. Why those ones in particular? Okay. Brilliant. Okay, listen, we've had time to think on this. I can give you, if you've got more questions on this, the best place or one of the best places to go is a website called bethinking.org. It's uh, established and put together by uh, the universities and colleges Christian Fellowship. Um, Within uh, what they've done is, is answered loads of apologetic questions about our faith, uh, other religions, science, uh, why trust the Bible, is, did the resurrection happen, all those kind of things. Uh, so if you go to bethinking.org, there's loads on their section in the Bible about this. Some of those questions, how do we know the reliability of uh, New Testament documents, uh, how was the Bible put together, uh, all those kinds of things there. Oh, there you go, that thing there, very helpful. Uh, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing two verses of a song before we have communion together. Let's pray.